This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Welcome to an encore replay series of Heritage Matters. We are replaying the best of series that we played over the Christmas New Year period this year. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a program brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Ryman Healthcare. I'm Dougal Stevenson. Like most of you, we're on holiday at the moment. So for your listening pleasure, we've selected a series of stories we ran earlier in the year. In this program, Anne Barraclough profiles Millicent Baxter, the maternal head of a remarkable family. Gregor Campbell records how Port Chalmers once went dry. Judy Southworth brings us part two of the Archie Dunningham story. And we hear a sermon on the benefits of purity. With the recent centenary of World War I, we've heard a lot about Archibald Baxter, the famous pacifist, in honour of whom Dunedin is to erect a memorial. And near the burned statue in the octagon is a plaque to James K. Baxter, his son, who is considered one of New Zealand's greatest poets. But who was the wife and mother in this distinguished family? Anne Barraclough decided to find out. I was unpacking in a country town when someone pushed open the front door and called out cheerily, I've come to meet Mrs. Doctor's wife. I cringed and had some difficulty graciously accepting the proffered cake. She was a neighbour who had kindly announced my new identity. How much worse this must have been for Millicent Baxter, whose fascinating biography, Out of the Shadows, I have just read. She was conscious of the fact that she was the daughter of a famous mother and father, wife of a famous man, and mother of one of New Zealand's foremost poets. Millicent's mother, Helen Conan, was Canterbury University's first female student. She graduated in 1880, did a first-class master's in English and Latin, and became the first woman in the British Empire to obtain an honours degree. She was also a renowned beauty. John Macmillan Brown, a professor's son and lecturer, married Helen in 1886. He was 41, she 29, principal of Christchurch Girls College. He went on to become Chancellor of the University of New Zealand. They bought a fine house, richly furnished, with antiques and paintings, surrounded by spacious gardens. In 1888, their first child, Millicent, was born. Helen returned full-time to work. A nursemaid cared for Millicent. Ten years later, Viola was born. The sisters enjoyed a privileged childhood, a gracious home, servants, two holiday houses and overseas trips, but had neurotic, distant parents. The girls were homeschooled, but Millicent briefly attended school in England on an overseas trip in 1900. Back home, her father coached her for scholarships to Sydney University. He was an overbearing martinet, and relationships were strained. He much preferred Viola, whom he called a beautiful replica of his wife, who died of diphtheria aged 46 in 1903. After failing entry, Millicent lived in Sydney with an aunt, made friends, enjoyed herself, and passed the entry exams, gaining a BA in Latin, French and German in 1908. Her summer holidays were spent in New Zealand enjoying exploring the backcountry with friends. 
After graduating, she and her father visited Europe again. Millicent was accepted by Cambridge University, where she gained her tripos in French and Old French. She wrote, The easy, pleasant life, unlike any other in the world with its interesting work and delightful companions, was moving irrevocably into the past, and so was all the life of the middle class in England as I'd known it. Perhaps it was right that it should go. We were comfortable, so self-satisfied, and around us were evils and everywhere in the world which we never saw nor thought of. We saw them now, but sometimes I feel a nostalgia for those times. She had acquired a refined upper-class English accent, and although she tried to lose it, retained it all her life. Back in New Zealand, Millicent spent the war years making up Red Cross parcels for troops overseas and helped in the Inquiry Bureau of the Red Cross sending information to the families of soldiers missing or presumed dead. Archibald Baxter, a rabbiter from Brighton, a declared pacifist, had been conscripted into the army and sent to the front, where he was subjected to inhumane and cruel treatment, the worst being a form of crucifixion called Field Punishment No. 1. In March 1918, he wrote to his parents what was to become the famous letter which found its way into truth. It is not possible for me to tell you in words what I have suffered, but you will be glad to know that I have met a great many men who have shown me the greatest kindness. If you hear that I have served in the army, or that I have taken my own life, do not believe that I did it in my sound mind. No matter what anyone says, I never will. Millicent later wrote of the letter, which she read in 1918. My whole life changed. From then on, I began to look at things differently. It altered my whole outlook on politics and everything in life. I keep it in my handbag to this day. The letter moved me right out of my shell into the open. And in the open, I've remained, looking into things, questioning them. The people around me were still solidly warlike, that's to say, normally patriotic. There was terrible hostility to any pacifist opinion. In mid-1919, she and her sister went to Sydney, where Viola studied art. John, then 74, was offered the post of Professor of English at Otago University. Although he had retired from Canterbury 24 years earlier, he had been Chancellor of the University of New Zealand since 1916. He insisted Millicent come with him. Charles Brash, who knew her at this time, wrote that she had a strong, independent, inquiring mind. She decided to meet Archibald Baxter. She caught the bus to his parents' house in Brighton several times, but Archie was away rabbiting in central Otago. Six months later... Having heard of the small lady with the refined voice, they met. He looked terrible. His teeth were decayed and his eyes stuck out. They fell in love. She said, Archie had everything I'd hoped for. Someone was something I had not really believed I should ever find. The perfect understanding I had imagined and never found. He told her she was the woman he had dreamed of all his life and that he would never have married had they not met. She returned to Christchurch. Her father was aghast and tried to dissuade both from marrying. Archie's family was equally opposed in view of the couple's totally different backgrounds and education. 
He had left school at 14. She was a multiple graduate. On 12th of February, 1921, she 33, he 40, they were married quietly, with no reception in the Dunedin Registry Office. With help from Millicent's father, they bought a farm at Kuri Bush, with a four-roomed cottage lacking running water or electricity. Millicent adapted easily to her new life, and as she had never had to learn to cook or keep house, she never mastered these skills, although she considered herself a good cook. She loved gardening. They were very happy. They sold milk, butter, eggs and bacon. Many neighbours ostracised them as Archie was considered a notorious pacifist and they thought Millicent standoffish and snobbish. The granddaughter of one of Millicent's friends, interviewed biographer Penny Griffith, said, I always remember her being an outspoken person, quite acidic. She wasn't nasty, but she certainly had a bite to her tongue. Terence was born in 1922. He was a contented, good-looking child. In June 1926, James Keir Baxter was born. In 1930, they moved to Brighton, where, at 15 Bedford Parade, they had electricity. The family were avid readers, and at the age of seven, James began writing poetry. There were lots of Baxter relatives in Brighton, a close-knit community. Archie returned to shearing, and Millicent established an alpine garden, while Archie tended the vegetable garden. The house was a shambles. Guests would have to move books and magazines off chairs to find somewhere to sit, and sometimes, if Millicent was enthralled in a good book, meals would be missed. The couple joined the Labour Party and founded the Dunedin branch of the No More War Movement and avidly pursued pacifism. Their good friends were fellow pacifists, but generally the Brighton people had difficulty relating to Millicent. The couple often took the boys camping, sleeping under tarpaulins and eating rabbits cooked on an open fire. In 1935, John Macmillan Brown died, leaving his two daughters a generous annuity. Millicent Archie and the boys took a two-year trip round Europe in 1937, where they visited some of the places Archie had known during the war. It was then he decided to write a book on his experiences. He dictated the text to Millicent. We Will Not Cease was published in London by Victor Gallant in 1939. It was not until the second printing by Caxton Press in 1968, when pacifism was becoming more tolerated, that it began to do well and has become an anti-war classic that has inspired a film and an opera. With the coming of the war, 19-year-old Terence, who had been to a Quaker school in Wanganui, was called up for territorial service, appealed on conscientious grounds, refused a non-combatant role, was arrested and spent the war in prison and a defaulter's camp. James completed his education at King's High School, where he often turned up late, scruffy, shoeless and lunchless, and refused to take part in cadets. At university, he did well in English, continued to write poems, and started drinking to excess. In 1945, Caxton Press published his first book of poems. He dropped out of university and got a job at an iron foundry, causing a rift between himself and Millicent. 
1995, Dr. Janet Wilson of Waikato University theorised that the tormented and talented J.K. Baxter was born into this marriage of emotional exclusiveness, a seemingly monolithic institution, where he was forced early on to negotiate his self-identity. His failure to achieve relatedness with his mother, to discover a sense of autonomy other than momentarily through his art, probably contributed to his obsessive urges, his alcoholism, his intense piety, his search for an alternative society, and the compulsion to write as a release. Oh, woe is me, I thought as I read this. I and all those mothers who have good relationships with our sons have stifled their creativity and denied them the opportunity to form their self-identity. Millicent's biographer argues that Millicent and Archie were in love with each other at the expense of their children, as had Millicent's own parents been. On 10th of August 1970, Archie died, aged 88, and in 1972, James died, aged 46. Millicent, Archie and James had all become Catholics some years earlier. After Archie's death, Millicent had moved from the large house in Brighton to 10 Kinsman Street, Wockery, and at the age of 83, visited her sister in England again. Viola had studied art and married an Italian musician. In the late 1970s, Millicent began writing her memoirs. In July 1983, she broke her hip, after which she experienced dementia, before dying a year later, aged 96. She lies beside Archie in the Green Island Cemetery. I am Anne Barrowclough, reporting for Heritage Matters. I am grateful to the voices of Judy and Bill Southworth and Penny Griffith, for Out of the Shadows, The Life of Millicent Baxter. Before the invention of shipping containers, ships used to spend a lot of time in Port Chalmers loading and unloading. The crews had plenty of downtime in port, so there were a lot of pubs where they could wet their whistles. But remarkably, at the beginning of the 20th century, all those pubs were closed and shuttered. Here's Gregor Campbell with that story. In late 1902, there was a general election in New Zealand. As was customary, voters could also, for their electorate, vote on the subject of alcohol, and prohibition was one of the options. In Port Chalmers, publicans were visited before the vote by a delegation of workers from the wharfing and ironworking trades with a request. They wanted a thrupney beer, presumably a small drink for the working man on his way home rather than cheaper beer as such. The publicans refused, and the workers said they would vote for a dry electorate. Seemingly to everyone's surprise, Chalmers' electorate went dry. Not the least surprised were members of the local temperance movement. Their pre-election meetings had not been roaring successes. On the eve of the vote, a small but fervent prayer session had convened until 1.30 in the morning. To them, the reason for the result was clear. It was divine intervention. It can still be debated, as it was at the time, whether consumption of alcohol declined in the district when it was freely available to be consumed in and taken back from Dunedin. Many Port Chalmers men, instead of having a few beers after work each day, saved their money and took the Saturday train into town. The last train to the port on a Saturday evening was named by its crew the Royal Soaks Express and described as not 
a place for ladies. Scenes of disorder outside the Dunedin railway station were commonplace. Pickpockets benefited from the disorder. Arrests were also made in Port Chalmers of now ex-publicans suspected of ignoring the law. Distinctions between alcohol offered to private guests and that offered for payment were fine ones and difficult to prove beyond reasonable doubt, as was the status of stocks left in storage after the vote or bought as part of a property transaction. Immediately after the result of the election, a petition was raised for an inquiry into certain irregularities in the vote, including a number of votes from peninsula booths which had unaccountably gone missing. Senior Magistrate Graham presided, but his jurisdiction was challenged by counsel for the Prohibition Movement. Graham declined the challenge, which was then taken to the Supreme Court. That court upheld the challenge, but its decision was in turn challenged in the Court of Appeal. That court upheld the challenge to Graham's jurisdiction, so the matter was taken higher to the Privy Council in Britain. It is not a long tale to tell, but it will not surprise listeners that the legal process took almost three years before the decision was finally made that the no-licence vote was invalid. The status of beer in Port Chalmers returned to its pre-election one. Prohibition would again need a three-fifths majority to return to the Chalmers electorate. August of 1905 eventually saw a crop of notices in local newspapers declaring the intentions of publicans to obtain licences from the next meeting of the licensing committee at the local courthouse. Thirteen applications were made to the committee from Ravensbourne, Normanby, Shell Hill and Portobello, as well as from Port Chalmers, and all applications but one were allowed. Pubs opened, no doubt to some jubilation, but the Otago Daily Times was able to report that the habitual quietness of the township can hardly be said to have been disturbed. Cheers. I'm Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. In our last programme, we brought you part one of an interview Judy Southworth did with former Dunedin City Librarian Mary Ronnie, who told us about her distinguished predecessor, Archie Dunningham. Dunningham was quite striking in appearance, something that writer Charles Brash noted in his book Indirections. Archie Dunningham looked all finesse and discretion, black-haired, smoothly rounded and sleek as an otter, with flawless pale olive complexion, talking rapidly in a low voice which he raised whenever necessary to silence objection, and slowing down at times to linger on and repeat a word or phrase with quick soothing gestures of his hands and slightly frowning concentrated face. He span a cocoon of propositions and schemes which admitted no possibility of your disagreeing. A strong, restless intelligence concerned to make a first-rate library in Dunedin. He was thorough and thoroughly diplomatic. In the second part of her interview with Judy, Mary Ronnie told us about the changes Dunningham made to the way the DCC library was run. was this lively, out-and-in stuff, this material was coming and going all the time. And we were expected on the desks in those rooms to help people get what they wanted then and do research for them if that was necessary. And being in the commercial and technical room, which I took over when I was 20, just at the end of the war, 
the things that were being published that had been secret, like atomic energy, jet engines. You can imagine what suddenly came into print. And of course, it was absolutely wonderful. And Archie was very good at letting me. And maybe I should interrupt this with one personal account of just how important he personally was to me. Because when I took that room over, I had no experience, really, of managing a department. I'd done the shelving. That was it. And I remember standing in front of my desk when he came up to me early in the morning and he had a knack of coming when you were looking your stupidest, really, if you were just not very sensible. And he said, you don't like the look of this. And I said, no, I don't like the look of it. It's needing cleaned out and somehow put in the basement. He said, you get a trolley and I'll get two stools. And for the next month, we sat side by side on two stools. We went right through every single volume in that room and he talked about why you bought a particular book. And it was a better class lesson than any I ever had at university or library school. It was brilliant. I can still remember him looking at air navigation and saying, Weems on air navigation, Miss Ronnie, he's the best. And that was, the, that was what was necessary, was you bought the best. That was all that mattered. If you had enough money for two things, you could perhaps bring the second best in. But if you just had enough one money, one enough money for one book, you got the best and you made sure of it. He liked the staff to have multiple interests so that they would know what was the best. So that when Mr. Dunning himself started breeding ducks in the down around Opahol, we got lots of books on ducks. We got lots of books on bulbs and all the gardening when he got interested in that. So that was a huge impulse for me. I just thought that this was absolutely great and that he would take the time to work with a junior because that's all I was at the time. I had no, well, I did have the Library Association certificate, but that was all. I barely started my degree, but that didn't matter. What matters was that the public out there had to have this. So personally, that was very important to me. And he generated a sort of energy in all of us about change. Nothing would stay the same. I don't know how the public felt about this, because there were times when nothing stayed the same for weeks on end and we were chuckling out things. He was badly keen on statistical analysis, so you you had you learned how to actually assess what people were reading. And he had got Peter, whom I eventually married much later, to invent a system which enabled us to do this. I think the only place in the world was somewhere in America that had it, but Peter invented this, and nobody liked it, of course, on the staff, but it did tell you. You could save up the record of it, and, and analyse them in your own time about who was reading what and why you should have as much as possible. So there were all sorts of things that we were got built into the system of the library that were important. The public was the most important part of it. The staff was only there to serve the public. But I can still remember the day he, I was acting as his deputy by that time. Miss Fash had gone overseas on a trip and he came along and said, I think, you know, we should be able to show our Indonesian friends some of New Zealand. Would you organise us to go to Milford 
So I said, yes, of course I would. So I organised a trip to Milford, and the day before we went, he said, of course I'm not coming. So I found myself in charge of this band of brothers going over to Milford Sound, and we had a great weekend. Not marvellous weather, but it was all pretty good. But that was quite typical of that library. We began to go on expeditions. We took one expedition up to Lake Mary, and I still feel frightened slightly about that. But it was the way he managed to do it. We also set about altering the huge gardening section, and it meant that every every piece of cataloguing had been done and it had to be changed. So we put it all back on the shelves the way we thought it would to be, and then he looked at me and said, and of course you will tell the cataloguer, won't you? And floated off. So he was you know, enormous fun if you found that sort of thing fun. I think it might be disconcerting if you didn't. I think we were very sad indeed when he went off to Indonesia and eventually, of course, stayed there. Mary Ronnie has written a comprehensive history of the Dunedin Library called Freedom to Read, which listeners with an interest in the subject are sure to find interesting. Older generations worried about the morals of young people, and they often used sermons from the pulpit to tell them so. Gregor Campbell has come across a warning issued by an early Dunedin Synod which did not hold back when it lectured young about the need for purity. Dunedin's Presbyterian Synod in the late 19th century was concerned with many things regarding the inner lives of its congregation. They were a spiritual bulwark against the rising tide of immorality propagated by outside sources, as evidenced in this excerpt from a report in the Otago Witness of November 1892, under the subheading of Impurity. Your committee find it impossible to put before you the wide extent to which this evil exists and the ravages it is making among the young people of this colony. It is a state of things, however, demanding at our hands the most serious and careful consideration, and your committee hope that wise and effective measures will be taken to bring about a purer and healthier sentiment in regard to a sin which more than any other is eating into the heart of our social life. Men and women should be made more fully to realise the shame and disgrace that rest upon those who are in this respect transgressors and to understand the righteous displeasure with which God regards every form of impurity. While the source of this vice lies deeply embedded in the natural heart, your committee have only too good reason to fear that its prevalence is greatly fostered by the reading of novels in which the plot turns on libertinism, by anarchist literature which is daily spreading, and by indecent pictures which are sold in a clandestine way to the young It is also a notorious fact that advertisements appear in several of our newspapers that lead to the introduction of pamphlets whose only tendency is to encourage prurient thought, and so the very soul of purity is being driven out of the hearts of our young people. It is gratifying to observe that the Offensive Publications Bill, which deals with this evil, has become law. While it may not be in our power to prevent the poison from finding its way into the hands of the young, yet surely it is not impossible to provide the antidote. 
a frank statement of truth, physiological, moral and spiritual, would at least put them on their guard against the injury done to body and soul by indulging in this vice. Although these iniquities abound, it is yet only right to say that the returns sent to your committee make it abundantly plain that those within the church are to be recognised as to a great extent free from the vices of gambling and impurity. This fact forces upon us anew the truth that the church is the grand conservator of purity and righteousness and that the gospel of Jesus Christ is still mighty to the destroying of the lusts of the flesh and the fortifying of the heart against the temptations of the wicked one. I am the very pure Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. This program, which will be repeated on Sunday at 7pm, is kindly sponsored by Ryman Healthcare and brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. Ryman Healthcare prides itself on offering some of the most resident-friendly terms in New Zealand. Ryman Healthcare's Francis Hodgkins and Yvette Williams Retirement Villages in Dunedin offer the very best of retirement living and care. For more information and to discuss your retirement living options, please phone Kate on 455-7936. Ryman Healthcare. Supporting Southern Heritage Trust and the Heritage Matters Program. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.